This week on Our Thing. This was the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. The language was so real. Everybody wanted to offend everybody. It was fun. Author Lewis Spencer takes us back to the culture of the Vietnam era. I went to the internet and looked up a test your memory test, and it came with a scoring sheet, and it looked really easy, and he scored very low. We both cried. We knew something was wrong. And Sonia Disher recounts her husband's heartbreaking battle with Alzheimer's. Stay tuned for the most entertaining hour in radio. This is Our Thing with everyone's favorite ex-gangster, Gunner. Gunner, 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 Gunner. What's up? Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. I am your host, Gunner Lindbrom, joined by my co-host, Bill Crooks from Partners in Crime Podcast. Salute. So, dude, you're never going to believe this. So, like, I don't even share this story with anyone because nobody will believe it. But years ago, when I was in the street before I went to prison, <laughs> was in Detroit performing at the warehouse or one of these places where she was performing, right? So she was there with her entourage. And my friend was managing the hotel that she was staying in with her like bodyguards and stuff like that. There was a couple of rappers with her. And no, it wasn't like a huge entourage, but they had a couple security guards or whatever. And my boy, he says, listen, these people are dumb as hell. They're staying on floor like the third room down from the end, if you wait in the stairwell and get them coming in from the show, you could rob them. They probably got $200,000 worth of jewelry on. His exact words, is, they probably got $250,000 worth of jewelry on. And I'm like, damn, bro. So I call my cousin to say, listen, you, you want to rob them with? And he says, yeah, you know, how are we going to do it? We wait in the fire exit when they come in. So we get masks on, zip ties, the whole thing, you know, right? And it's, they're coming down the hall. There's about five of them. We bust out of the freaking hall, all black with shotguns on the floor, on the floor, on the floor. They're freaking out, you know. It's, she's literally freaking going, okay, okay, okay. And, you know, she's telling the guys, give them what they want. Give them what they want. You know, cash and jewelry, cash and jewelry. Take it off. I said, anybody makes a mistake, it's going to be your last day on earth. I said, we ain't playing with you, man. Get the money. Get the money. And so they didn't even have that much money. A couple thousand bucks. We got the jewelry. Zip tie them. Leave them on the floor. I'm standing there with a shotgun. on the ground zip tying them. Somebody picks their head out the window and goes, oh, and they slam the door shut. The whole time, I don't even like repeating what I said, but it was very, very bad, scary stuff. Yeah, of course. And I said it with the type of force that meant I was very serious. So they're just like, <laughs> anyways, we get all the jewelry. If the jewelry is all fake, except a watch was worth like, I don't know, 3,500 bucks. Yeah, not worth the freaking penalty for robbing them. Hell no, bro. I thought I was going to get $250,000 score, bro. Right. I figured, okay, it's worth two fifty. I could probably sell it to my uncle in his pawn shop for $150, $125. That's a score. I don't got to work for the next six months. I don't got to do nothing. I can sit back at the beach, work out, do nothing, whatever. Freaking walked away with a freaking maybe five grand to split between us, me and my cousin. So just know. keeping score, if we ever run into <laughs> how much do we owe her, like four grand? Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> and the crazy part is I'm a fan of <laughs> I liked it. It sucks. I know. All I saw was a score. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Opportunity to make some money. Oh, wise guy, eh? So you know what that means? Street Beats, the part of the show that Bill discusses and covers latest underworld events. Street Beats, True Crime Corner. Bill, what do you got for us? Time has run out for a TikTok influencer. See what I did there? Made a clock pun. 24-year-old uh -oh. Sabrina Duran Montero, a.k.a. La Aina, known as a narco-influencer, reportedly has hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. She's kind of a super hot gangster girl. Also, a mother of one. That doesn't help. 
But she is more than just a social media opposer, according to police, who explained that Duran was recently doing a little time in the pokey for receiving stolen vehicles and drug trafficking. She just got out about a month ago. Speaking of the pokey, she reportedly had a same-sex relationship with her cellmate. Was her cellmate hot too? Uh, the article doesn't say. Huh. But they do mention that Duran and her two brothers were also popped earlier this year on suspicion of dealing in cannabis, cocaine, MDMA, and magic mushrooms, which really aren't magic. It's just chemistry and science. Now, if you've never been introduced to the exploits of the narco queen, well, you missed your chance. She just got gunned down in her car in Chile on October 24th. Oh, no. In a gruesome video, she is seen getting shot, laying face down on the ground. Looks like she's trying to get up, and then she gets shot multiple times by an unknown assailant who then stole her car for good measure. I'll report back as the story develops. That's all we got. That's your Street Beats. Thank you, Bill. I was the whole time thinking about her and their cellmate. You had me there. But what a sad story, man. You don't want to be a gangster no. on social no. media. It's not a joke and you'll end up dead. Okay, hold up. Looks like we need to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back. Hey, have you checked out Our Thing Apparel? It's the original gangster clothing brand that lets you represent where you live. Featuring t-shirts, hoodies, vintage tracksuits, and more. Our Thing Apparel allows you to customize your clothing for your city or state. And now we're proud to launch our Atlanta line of urban casual wear. Check out OurThingApparel.com and use the promo code 1010 when checking out to get 10% off your total order. Make our thing your thing. Do you own a timeshare? Well, face the facts. You made a mistake. You made a bad purchase. A timeshare is not an investment. It's a money pit that continues forever. If you use your timeshare, that's great. But if you don't and you want to legally get out of your contract, call my friends right now at the Timeshare Exit Hotline. They're an experienced team of lawyers who help good people like you get out of a timeshare contract that they just don't want. Don't throw away your money on maintenance fees. Use it for things you really want. We can help you end your timeshare contract and stop the money drain immediately. If you are ready to move on with your timeshare, call our team right now. Cancel your timeshare now with a free call. 800-852-1736. 800-852-1736. That's 800-852-1736. Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. Now I'd like to introduce my first guest of the night, Lewis Ritter, author of Turbulence and other books too. He's got another one coming out soon. But what we're going to do right now is dive a little back into his story. And this is one of those stories where when I say dive back, we're going to go back. He's an older gentleman, not old, but I guess he would be considered a boomer a little bit before Gen X. And he's written an interesting novel about that era that takes place in the late, I believe, 1960s, the Vietnam War era. And Lou, before we get into that, tell us about you, where you're from, and a little about your life. That way you have an idea of who you are so we know what led you up to writing this book. Okay. Well, basically, I grew up in a place called Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is right near the Newark airport. And I went to a very interesting school called Thomas Jefferson High School. It does not exist anymore. But even from middle school, I always felt the need to write. 
I was a big fan of the show called The Avengers. It was a British spy show back in the 60s. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was in love with Diana Rigg, but everybody else was too. So, And it just was my thing. I don't know. And the big breakthrough for me was when MASH came on during its first season, it didn't do well in the ratings. They were going to cancel it. And I wrote a letter. I can't imagine how long it was, but it must have been like five to ten pages. And it went to the producer, Larry Gelbart. And obviously, Gelbart was so impressed that he sent me a letter back. And we corresponded probably for a couple of months. And at one point, he sent me some scripts. And he said, well, hey, you, you interested in pitching some ideas? And I said, absolutely. And I bothered all the people in my fraternity with, hey, what do you think about this story or that story? And they all were like, oh, no, not again. So I did pitch some ideas that to this day I think were terrific. But he just said, no, it, for whatever reason, he said, I'm not interested. Well, time out. I got a million questions. Yeah, me too. What was it about MASH that made you so impassioned that you wrote a five-page letter? Because when the Sci-Fi Channel canceled Caprica, I was pissed, <laughs> but it never occurred to me to complain. Well, first of all, I saw the movie when it first came out in 1970, and I loved the show. I mean, Alan Alda, Wayne Rogers, yeah. they're phenomenal. And I think because I'm a history person, the idea of these doctors in this medical unit really drew me in. There was an episode that really kicked it for me. It was called Sometimes You Don't Hear the Bullet, which was Ron Howard, believe it or not, played a young kid who gets wounded. Hawkeye has to work and save his life. I think I remember that. Yeah, this was like a very famous episode. And at the end, he gives Ron Howard a medal and he gets him off the, uh, the front. But Ron Howard was like an impetuous kid who wanted to go back and fight. Anyway, this was like the groundbreaking episode for the series because it was a very serious episode. It was a great mixture of drama and comedy, and it captured the essence of the movie so perfectly that people started to notice that this just wasn't your run-of-the-mill sitcom. It had depth. I guess that's what drew me. So anyway, I had some great ideas, I thought. Let me interrupt and just to tell you sure. a quick math story. I have to, because it's going to drive me crazy if I don't. My dad watched it all the time. I would not watch okay. it. I literally hated it. That music, that intro music. Right. I love that. But yeah, okay. It was so ho-hum and oh, on my nerves. Then one day, I'm flipping through the channels. Probably 14, 15 years old, probably smoking weed. And I just happened to click on all the scene there. And it was funny. So I listened a little more. It's funny. Next thing you know, it became my favorite show. I am not joking. It went, <laughs> of course. I was going to say, man, it's a classic. Yeah, it went from I hated it to literally my favorite show. And I think I've watched every episode on there. I'm not joking. Yeah, so, no, I, I was really hooked on it for many seasons. And um, I had so many shows, but all my favorite shows always got canceled after one season. I wrote so many letters. There was a show called He and She, which was a sitcom. <laughs> he's that guy, Bill. He's, you know, he's he's like, guy. I wrote so many freaking letters. <laughs> Every show I like. Hey, can you tell us just one of your ideas for MASH that they rejected? Oh, oh, yes. It was the idea that Radar O'Reilly has correspondence with this girl in back in the States, and he wants to impress her, and he tells the girl, writes the letter to the girl, that, that he's on the front line with an infantry unit and that he's going to get a Silver Star. And I thought that Hawkeye recognizes this and at the end of the show tells Radar, I, you know, you don't want to do that. And uh, yeah. so I thought that was a good idea. It's a great idea and totally plausible. You can yeah. see him doing yeah. that. I, yeah, I totally. loved it. You know, they would be perfect, but this is the way it worked. They probably put it in front of other writers or staff people and they said, well, yeah, OK, forget it. 
But yeah, I spent like a couple of weeks just coming up with different ideas. And I also had one where they had a new surgeon who freaks out the first time he's in combat. It was beyond my control. It was a blast. But I've always wanted to be a writer. So, Lou, this sparked the writing bug clearly in your life. What point did you start to create the story for Turbulent and why? Okay. Basically, I was working with this guy who was part of a production company that they were trying to form, and they were looking for material. And the guy calls me up and says, you know, we're looking for story ideas that we can sell. And I was thinking back, well, I remembered my days in my fraternity, and I thought, well, maybe that's interesting. But then I remembered that Jane Fonda came to speak one night at the Rutgers gym. And from there, I said, well, I had some interesting people that I had met. My roommate at the time was like a very radical guy. And I was in a fraternity and I had, you know, hell night and all that other fun stuff. And I said, this would be great. And I started it. But what happened was I wrote the first draft and I had a problem with the story. It just wasn't working out. I went to a writer's workshop. There was something that they said, I can't remember, but it inspired me to revamp the whole idea. Now, you know, I have the beautiful feminist, the woman who becomes gay on junior year, because I had a friend who became gay. He came back from France, an African-American student, etc. In other words, it was very diverse. Right. And it, it just took off from there. You know, I just, I've developed it. Oh, oh, the most important thing. I went to a workshop with a gentleman named Joe Rosario. Check him out. He's a director on Broadway now. But I worked with him on a revision of this and a show called Mr. Zack, which will probably never see the light of day. But we had such a good time working on this and really taking it to a new level that, you know, someday maybe if I'm really lucky, you know, someone will say, hey, that would be a great idea for Netflix or whatever. You never know. Yeah, you never know. I mean, life is funny that way. So this main character of yours, tell me a little about this main character in his story. like Because he's he's got quite right. the plight. So he's a college student back in the 60s, a journalist major, I believe. And he's working for the local paper, school paper. Tell me about that guy. What's his name and what's his deal? His name is Danny Watkins. And what was interesting was that one of the first people I met at college way back then was a fellow named Scott Myers, who was a wrestler. But he said he came from Jersey Shore, Pennsylvania. And that was so strange, but it stuck in my mind for 50 plus years. So my character, Danny, comes from Jersey Shore. He wants to be a journalist, but the editor of the paper doesn't like him. And he gives him all these silly stories. Like, what kind of character is he? Is he like a, a book ready nerd? He's athletic. Is he a good looking guy or is he kind of a slick guy, charming or not? So is he awkward? What is he? He's intellectual, a little bookish, yeah. but he's also the student advisor for the dormitories. This way I enabled me to capture some of the characters. You know, yeah. I hate to use the word diverse, but it was very diverse. And it enabled me to capture some of their subplot stories, for yeah. lack of a better yeah. term. Smart. Yeah. So eventually he's forced to go to New York because he remembers that Abby Hoffman, who was very controversial at the time, was doing a book tour. So he goes to New York and he walks in there and he says, I want to have Abby Hoffman come to Rutgers. The editor at the book publisher is like, nah, kid, get out of here. And he gets into a fight with the security guys. However, Abby Hoffman himself is watching this event and he's going, hey, this kid's got balls. And he also says to Abby, because he's befriended this guy who runs a bookstore in New Jersey, he said, I know so-and-so. So at the end of the chapter, 
He walks out defeated, but it turns out that Abby does show up. He does the speech. And then he singles Danny out and he goes, Danny, you have the exclusive story, the exclusive interview. And Danny becomes a star on the paper. And that's how I end book one. In your book, though, kind of you're ahead of your time if you're being diverse, but that's cool. Mission wise, explain to the listeners and the readers that this is a very unique time in history in terms of culture. And so kind of tell them what the culture was like at the time while this kid who's writing for a little paper at Rutgers is what's happening in the world and what he's kind of focusing on and what the paper wants him to be focused on. Ultimately, the editor tells him, you know, beat it. You know, you're fired. But he's going to lose his department and his scholarship and all this stuff unless he comes up with some gold, right? Absolutely. Well, I mean, this was the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s. It was still the anti-war movement was very strong. It was the beginnings of the feminist movement, gay liberation, the whole gamut. And in a way, it, it captures that era so well. But the thing that I loved most was the language was so real in those days. You didn't have to go, oh, am I going to offend somebody? Right. No, everybody wanted to offend everybody. It was fun. Yeah. And I have one chapter where it's called Whale's Tales, and it was a drinking game where everybody drank until they dropped. And I had so much fun because everybody spoke their mind. They're not afraid. And it was great. Yeah, it's yeah. the flip side. Yeah. And you know, I wanted to bring that up because like Gunnar said, you're kind of from the boomer generation. Yeah. And now, you know, of course, the millennials and the boomers are somehow at odds, right? And they're always like, okay, boomer, okay, boomer. <laughs> I think there's a complete ignorance of that generation yeah. of the bad asses that were the boomers. Yeah. The balls of these kids and how they stood up and how they refused to just die for no reason. Yeah. And I feel like the millennials aren't getting that. All the things they think they're doing now. Yeah. Seems like they would be worshiping the boom. Yeah, exactly. It's astounding to me. The boomers were the pioneers. Yeah, and they weren't pussies like these guys. <laughs> Definitely not. Right. Yeah. Boomers were either fighting in a war in the military or they were fighting against the war, really protesting. And getting shot by the National Guard at their college campuses. Oh. They weren't in some safe place yeah. right. looking to not be offended. If you said a word gay or something, they wouldn't go fall no. out. Go, oh, Screaming yeah. for the hills. Yeah. You, yeah. You're going to be canceled. I can only imagine the type of language that he's referring to. Like imagine two, like me and you, Bill, uh, we're drunk, ball busting and two Italian guys just ha- letting each other have it. So that's probably how the whole 60s was. And the thing is, with the whole liberation movement, where it was the drug culture, the counterculture, all the stuff that these kids today think that they're doing or accomplishing, the boomers were the ones who originated that crap. Man. Really did it when there was no safe space and there was no media protecting them. Yeah, no media protection, no cancel culture. Oh, no, I was just the opposite. We had so much fun. We had Saturday night dances, you know, with the fraternities, and some guys would be on. I can't use the actual term because it might offend somebody, but we had the wall. And the job of the kids on the wall were to bring in the most beautiful women into the fraternity and keep out the ones that we didn't think were so hot. Yeah. <laughs> I, can I say that? Yeah, yeah I, I did. Trust me, it'll be the least of what happens on our show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's, that's one of the things. But the language was freer. The attitudes were freer. It was more fun. I work as a substitute teacher in several districts in New Jersey. And you have to be so careful 
You can't say anything to these kids because they're going to be offended. You're going to get sued. Fired. You risk everything. It's 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 insane. Private sector is the same way now. Is no. it? Okay. Yeah, you've got to be very careful who you talk it. to and what you say. Yeah. You yeah. have to address yeah. them with their prefaces or he, shim, who, hey, who, well, well, I don't know. You don't even know. Yeah. Or whatever. There was one, I guess, transsexual in this class in one of the towns. And they stressed to me that you got to do the whole routine. And, you know, I'm respectful and all that. And I really didn't need the aggravation. So I followed the suit. Anyway, you get the picture. It's just you have to be so careful these days. I mean, even to the point of I can't talk about my college days because I might say something or reveal too much or who knows? But it's just, it's no fun to be a kid now. It really isn't. I mean, everybody does TikTok dances and, you know, crazy stuff. You're right. It's not. But you know what? I guess it's our fault. You know, our, my generation is the one that failed the kids, that these kids that started with them. So back in the day, we if your kid got out of line, you could slap the crap out of them and yep. they'd shut up. Now, if you slap the crap out of them, you go to jail. That's very true. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But I'll be devil's advocate, too. I feel like a lot of the post-millennial <laughs> stigma is a media concoction because in my day-to-day life, I don't meet these people. You know, when I meet the kids, when I meet young people of that age, they're okay. And, and who do you think's defending us in the armed forces? It's the millennials right now, right? Yeah. So Yeah, but your kids go to a private school. I know, but I think the media like takes your worst of your worst. The girl that's screaming when Trump got elected, you know? Oh, yeah. And I think a whole generation is being misrepresented by a few. We're not saying all of them, but I'm, I, I would put it at 15%. I think it's more than a few, but I don't think it's as many as you, they probably think. I think it's a lot, like probably 30, 40%. I cut that in half. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of parents are doing a good job raising their kids. You're doing a good job raising their kids. So there's a lot of people raising their kids properly who are not going to be offended or entitled or you know victims or whatever. But that wasn't even an option when I was a kid. You know what I'm saying? It just is what it is. Yeah, I agree. Hey, is there any way we could get you to take your first book and just pick something that you want to read so that people can just get a little sample of it? Absolutely. Okay. I'm just going to read the opening chapter, a couple pages. Starts off Rutgers, autumn 1970. There are many unpleasant memories in life, moments in life that you cannot avoid, must confront head on despite your fears. For Danny Watkins, late teens, lanky, with long brown hair, granny glasses, this was the moment that he truly dreaded. He trudged up the stairs towards the office of the Daily Targum, the student newspaper. He took a deep breath and proceeded up the stairs. He hesitated before entering, certain that no matter what he did, Morris, the editor of the paper, would find fault with his story. Jim Morris, in his 20s, was a large, ill-tempered man with a full beard and a gut from drinking too much beer. Morris was a brutal taskmaster who demanded much from his young staff. Danny had suffered from a bad relationship with a mercurial editor. It was the height of the Vietnam War protests on college campuses. Rutgers, like many other campuses, were being rocked daily by large-scale protesters opposing the war in Vietnam. Danny wanted to cover these protests, but Morris kept giving him stories that Danny considered trivial or uninteresting. Danny entered the newsroom and spotted one of his fellow reporters sitting at the desk. He eyed Danny as he entered, but turned away, refusing to make eye contact. Danny knew what was coming. It was clear that the other reporters did not want to be in Zeus's line of fire when he hurled his thunderbolts. Is that Danny? Tell him to get his ass in here. Morris roared from his office. Danny suspected that the meeting would not be pleasant. Given the events that transpired that night at the board meeting, 
He knew that he was entering the lion's den and that he would be the next meal. As he entered, Morris slammed the door behind him. I just got a phone call from the dean, thundered Morris, with a totally, if looks could kill, expression on his face. His mouth twisted into a demonic grimace. Where are your notes from the building fund, Morris asked. The question was in such rapid fire order that Danny had no time to pause and think about what to say. He handed him his notebook. Morris scoured the notes with a look of acrid distaste. They were gibberish. Where is the stuff about the dean's decision on the endowment fund? Danny sputtered. He knew that his ticket had been punched. I did them in a hurry, he said. Morris shook his head, eyeing the notebook, and with an act of indecipherable gibberish, he ripped them into shreds, tossing them into the nearby garbage can. Danny, I gave an important assignment to cover the board of governor's meeting. You f***ed it up, he said, shaking his head. Danny bowed his head. He felt a wave of nausea strike him. It was getting worse. Morris stared at him with a bitter, cold expression full of disdain. Not an ounce of remorse, but it was his job to punish Danny for his misdeeds. You represented us. The paper thundered Morris. I understand, said Danny. His voice was weak and filled with doubt. Do you? Do you really understand? Morris ranted as he paced around the floor. Danny knew that his job was on the line. It was possible that he could lose his scholarship and be forced to leave school. Many students who dropped out of school lost their student deferment and risked a fate worse than death by being drafted into the army. Danny felt his facade crumble. I'll call and explain it was my fault. Danny hoped to mollify Morris and deflect any errors that he had committed. But Danny was wrong. Morris was not in a conciliatory mood. He rose out of his seat, face beat red with anger, and confronted Danny. There's not going to be a next time, he bellowed at the young defenseless reporter. Danny was riveted to the spot. The words echoed across Danny's brain. All he could hear were the words, no next time. We'll print an apology. Do not bother to sign out. Now get out. Hunched over, Danny exited the building, red-faced and embarrassed. Danny's world had just collapsed. He contemplated his future, and it seemed pretty bleak. He could barely carry himself. He trudged back to his dormitory. Even though it was only a short distance away, the distance back to the dormitory seemed never-ending. He had no idea what he would do to redeem himself or his career. End of chapter. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. And he does redeem himself. So that's pretty cool. Big time. Yeah. Yeah. Douchebag boss. You know, hold on. I get it, dude. Well, I enjoyed doing that. And I hope that I really did a nice job of reading. Amazing. It. Amazing. I was completely enraptured <laughs> in what you said. Yeah, I was there. I was there. dude. 1968. I'm a young reporter. I got a douchebag boss. He's not giving me a chance. But then the best part is this is the part we want people to read the book because Danny goes and redeems himself by doing something that's badass. I'm not going to give you the story, but I mean, what he does is super badass. And basically, he kind of throws it back in the face of his douchebag boss. Yeah. Well, Lou, before we go, kind of tease your next books that you got coming out. So when you do publish them, we'll have you back on the show and we'll talk about those too. Oh, book two, a Vietnam veteran is on the campus, but he does not want people to know that he's a veteran because they were abused and treated very badly. And what happens is the member of the radical political group discovers his identity and harasses and intimidates him no end. It's Danny who gives him the idea on how to stand up to these people. And in the end, he makes this terrific speech in front of the whole university, basically. 
and everybody applauds him. And I wrote it first as a episode for my proposed series, but then I turned it into a full-fledged novel and I'm so happy with it. Once I'm ready to publish it, it'll be book two and I have book three, maybe even go beyond that. I don't know. What's book three? Book three is Danny's brother comes back from Vietnam and he has PTSD. And on top of that, he's accused of being part of like a My Lai massacre. Yeah, baby killer. It's a real heartbreaking ending the way I envision it. You know, it'll probably go through a lot of different revisions before that. But I think if I only do three books, it's an appropriate ending. It's very touching, sad, and I'm very proud of it. I mean, proud of all my stuff. Yeah, I do too. I think that's cool. It's like your perspective of the world is through the eyes of this young, kind of naive, firing journalist. Yeah. Um, he's a gung-ho guy, reporter. He just wants to get the story, be part of the movement, whether it's anti-war or whatever. I love it. That's a, There's a lot there to work with, and I think that this would be an interesting read, you know, I mean, take him back in time. So make sure to check out his book. Lewis, where can they find your book, and where can they find you on social media, if you have social media? I'm on Amazon. I'll look for Turbulence, but you need to either look for my name, Lewis Kenneth Ritter, or the subtitle, Dispatches from the Student Protest Movement, Rutgers 1970, because as I found out later... There are about 20 books with that title. So you need the subtitle, but look on Amazon. I am there and I'm waiting to sell my books. I'm sure if you just put Lewis Ritter Turbulence in, it pops up. I've done it. I know. And as always, if you look at our archive shows, I will have a link to all his stuff in the show notes. Yeah. Check out our show notes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. So make sure to check that out. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Has someone in your family lost a job recently? and now you can't afford your mortgage payment? Or do you have a rental property and your tenants aren't paying you? We can come to the rescue and pay you cash for your home immediately. Yes, sell your home and get cash all over the phone without dealing with real estate agents or having to waste time showing your home to lukewarm buyers. You don't need to lose your house to foreclosure. If you have equity in your home, we'll buy your home and give you cash within days, all in a simple over the phone and virtual process. Call now before your situation gets worse. Sell a home you can't afford or just need anymore and get the cash you need today. Call this number now. 800-950-3143 That's 800-950-3143 Paid for by Want to Sell. What's up? Welcome back to Our Thing on 1010 The King. And I'd like to welcome to the show my second guest for the night, Sonia Disher. Today we're going to have one of those guests that it's a little bit sad and somber, but also at the same time very inspirational. Her book is about early onset Alzheimer's disease. Now, Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. This is the second time I've had you on the air. I mean, I want to get into your story, but I, I think I would preface it a little bit with a little bit of my own story. And of course, Bill has intimate knowledge about this situation. His mother had Alzheimer's and, and she ended up passing away about a year or two ago. Uh, very sad. But I'm kind of forgetful. You know, I forget where I put stuff. And my wife starts to be concerned. She's like, man, I'm worried you got early onset Alzheimer's. And I'm like, you know, come on. But after hearing your story, it makes me very fearful. And I think just like everything else, a car accident, a murder or whatever, and everybody thinks it's going to happen to somebody else. It's not going to be not me. It'll never happen to me. That's right. And then it, it does. And so 
One is your book is a story of inspiration and love, commitment, loyalty, dedication. Very beautiful story. You should read it because it's a great story. It's very compelling. It shows dedication and love. And that's the most important thing about a wife or a spouse or a partner, regardless as a man or woman, is to have a true partner who's committed to you, loves you so much, where they only want to give you comfort and the best quality of life, especially at the end of your life. And Bill, if you don't mind, tell us a little about your experience with this. Sure. My mother started to get it, and at first it was little things, but it wasn't like she forgot where the keys were. You're talking about she's at the corner of the street and she doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know how to get back to the house, and that's when it's alarming. And she started to repeat herself. They called her two-second Tom because she'd tell you something and tell it again. And it just kind of went from there. They got her checked out, and when they realized she had early stages of Alzheimer's, okay, well, let's see, maybe there's things we can do and slow it down. It's just spiraled out of control so fast. And uh, it wasn't long before she didn't know who I was and wasn't long before she passed away. That's so sad. Sonia, you went through kind of the similar situation, didn't you? Yeah, Steve got sick when he was 50. Mm -hmm. And that's why it was called early onset. It's based on the age, getting it at an early age. And when you get it young, it's very aggressive. So within six years, he'd gone the full gamut and passed away. So it was very hard making the changes so rapidly. Take us back to the beginning where you met your husband and where you're from. Right. Um, I was born in England and I came over to Canada when I was 10 with my parents. And I met Steve in grade seven. Oh, really? And started going out with him when I was 16. We got married shortly after we got out of high school. He was into football and hockey and He was a great guy. He had good friends. He was a great husband and right hands on with the kids. He helped referee and coach hockey with my son and helped referee and coach with my daughter's competitive swimming. Even with our granddaughter, when she came along, he was hands on with her too. They were like peas in a pod and joined at the hip. They were very close. So generally, this is a good man. And obviously, he was the love of your life, your first and probably only love. So that makes uh, the story that much more impactful and remarkable. It's almost like a fairy tale, but with a bad ending, you know, not the ending that you want anyways. No. But in some ways, it's it's a beautiful story, too, you know? We thought we had our lives ahead of us, you know? It was like getting hit in the head with a bat when we got the diagnosis that this was wrong with him. He was healthy as a horse otherwise. What was his career most of his life? Uh, He was in the military. He joined the military three weeks after we got married. Smart man. (laughs) And uh, he was in the Air Force. He worked on jets out in Winnipeg to begin with. And then when we got to Petawawa in Ontario, he worked on helicopters. That's a cool job. He loved it. He loved it. And you know what? That stayed with him right till the end. Really? If you talk to him about military... He could have a comp. Well, he would babble along, but you could tell by the look on his face that he was enjoying the conversation and you had his attention. Yeah. Yeah, And even when he could talk still, he was worried about his men all the time and he would take off running. It was like he was in the military, the backpack on um, and he would run and I would have to try and get people to stop him. He wouldn't listen to me. I'll come back. I'll come back. But I knew he wouldn't know his way back. And he was worried about his men all the time. Heartbreaking, man. I even used one of his bosses from the military when he went into long-term care right at the end. If he didn't want to do what they wanted, I had permission for them to use one of his bosses' name in the military. So they would say, Sergeant Disher or Warrant Disher. And he would stop and they'd say, Warrant Officer so-and-so said, it's time to go to the mess. And he would immediately go into the dining room to have lunch. He didn't question it. 
That well, that just goes to show you how deeply ingrained that yeah. the military lifestyle is in your soul. You could lose everything else, but you don't lose no. that. But what a blessing to have that tool in your yeah. mind. I know. Yeah. Somebody explained to me because I said, why does he remember all that? But he can't remember what we did yesterday. And they said, your brain's like an onion. And if you peel an onion, the outer layers come off really easily. And those are your recent memories. But mm. as you get closer to the middle of the onion, it's harder to peel it. And yeah. those are your long-term memories. That's why they stay with you. So he was 50, because this is what I want the listeners and people to kind of keep an eye out for in life. But what was the first like signs to you? Well, there were signs, but I didn't notice them until afterwards. When I think back, there were signs. The one thing that really hit me to say that, yes, there's something wrong was I said, could you go outside and unplug the tree light, plug them directly into the house, then we'll have that extra extension cord. And he just stood there and looked at me. And I said, did you hear what I said? And he said, no. So I said it again, and he was still blank. And I said, you don't know what I'm saying, do you? And he said, no. And it was just like, oh, my God, oh. there is something wrong. So you knew. right? I then knew and something was wrong. And I don't know why, but I went to the Internet and looked up a test your memory mm -hmm. test, and it came with a scoring sheet. And I read through it, and it looked really easy. And I thought, oh, he's not going to have any problem with this. And he scored very low. He got 13 out of 30 or 13 out of 50. And we both cried. We knew something was wrong. Wow. And then when you wow. think back, uh, we were going to the donut shop one day and he didn't want to go through the drive through all of a sudden. He wanted me to go in. And I said, you just go through the drive through but, you know, it would be faster. And he said, well, then you order. So I had to yell across him to order. And I think he didn't think he would remember what it was. He knew yeah. something was wrong, but they try and hide it as long as they can. Yeah, naturally, every man has their ego and their pride. Yeah. You don't want your wife, the one woman you love more than anyone in the world, to see you become flawed or weaker or whatever. It's, well, know. even for a woman, too, though, you're scared and you don't want that to be real. Maybe you're imagining it and you don't want to voice that because then it is real. Yeah. Yeah, there was a point on my back porch. I was just sitting and talking with my mom, and she was telling me a story about her and her sister when they were girls and they'd fight and eat in bed and things. It was a nice story. And then she stopped and she told me the exact same story again. Yeah. I just kind of went along with it, you know, and oh, wow. And, and at the end of the story, she said, am I repeating myself? And I said, I don't mind. And she said, thank you. And then she stopped and said, you know, I know what's happening to me. And it's yeah. very scary. Yeah. And that's one of the last lucid conversations we had. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm so sorry, Bill. And I'm so sorry. I mean, yeah, it's, 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 these are heartbreaking stories because uh, I can't imagine being in that situation. But I know that you did turn a bad thing into a good thing with your book. What did you do? Did, did you go to a neurologist? You would think they'd figure this out, but they can't. Well, Steve, uh, being just out of the military, didn't have a doctor anymore. So I called my doctor and said, would you take him on? And they said, no, he's got enough patients he's not taking anymore on. Wait a minute, it's Canada. They, I thought yeah, I know. Yeah. So I made an appointment for myself, but I took him with me. Smart. And I took that memory test with me. And I said to the doctor, this isn't for me, it's for him. And I said, I took this test for him. You either take him on or find me somebody who will. So when he looked at the result, he said, this is room for concern. I'll take him on. And he got me a meeting with a geriatric specialist, a neurologist, 
uh, had every test under the sun, like a CAT scan, an MRI, mm-hmm. everything. And I paid $1,800 to have a full day of neuropsych testing done. And all of them came up with the same diagnosis. And when mm-hmm. I met with the geriatric specialist, she said, has anybody gone over this test with you, test results? And I said, no. So she said, every area of his brain has already affected Sonia. I don't know how he functioned because it was very low percentile in every area of his brain already. So it came on really fast, too, in yeah. terms of like some people are faster than others. But when yeah. you're young, it really comes on fast. And here's the most remarkable, sad thing about Alzheimer's in general. It doesn't just affect you psychologically, your memory and things like that. It actually affects your whole body. Yes. So you're now in a, a downward spiral of death. You're going to die. It's yes. not a matter of if you are. Yes. Does the body kind of forget how to function or what happens? Yeah, your brain works everything, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the first things that went was his fine motor skills and his depth perception. I saw him feeling the chair every time he went to sit down and his eyesight did deteriorate. It got to the point where he was like tunnel vision, mm-hmm. like looking through binoculars. If you come to see him by the side, he didn't see you. If you came straight on, he would be able to see that you're there. So a lot of things changed. His walking changed, slowed right down. In fact, that was one of the things, if I look back, we went to Vegas. We used to go to Vegas every year with friends of ours. And he was walking behind me this time. And I, I kept saying, are you mad? No. Nope. Right. Well, why don't you want to walk with me? And he, he didn't even realize he was doing it, just really slowed down. So there's two questions I want to ask about a couple of the things that happened. But didn't you have a couple of crazy, I think Bill had these same experiences too, where he would go out for runs and stuff and you had to send the cops after him? I had to call the cops three times to find him. And like people kept saying to me, you got to put him in a home. You got to put him in a home. And I said, no, he's not going in a home. I promised him if he got violent, that's when I would put him in a home. And he didn't get violent. Mm. But with him running, it became a safety issue. Yeah. And the third time I was in a panic and I thought, I can't do this anymore. This is the time. Because he would head right for the highway. That's crazy. And he'd be running down the side of the highway. And Can you imagine, Bill? Like this, this guy. Uh, well, yeah, I can. I can imagine exactly what it's like. The thing I would tell people with the home, my wife actually built memory care units and stuff from the ground up. That was the business she was in for a long time. So I had some familiarity with it. And I had to counsel my dad because he was of the same mindset, like, She's not going in a home. I can handle this. And I'm like, Dad, there is a staff of 10 people working around the clock that can barely handle this. And they're trained to do it. You are not. Right. You know, you do things like, OK, she was walking out. So he puts a stick in the door so she can't get out. Right. Then she can't find the bathroom. Right. So you put little signs up. OK. Yeah. Then she can't read the signs. Yeah. You know, yeah. And the signs don't mean anything. And, and they get mean and nasty and they say horrible things to you. And. Just when you're used to that, something else tomorrow will bring and it's worse. No matter how many times you figure out what to do, it's different tomorrow and it's going to get worse. It's a cruel disease. And that's what you got to realize. Steve was never mean. Like he never said anything mean to me, but I was showering him. I was toileting him and everything before I put him into the home. The only reason I put him in that home was because it was like you've lost your child. He won't know his way home. 
He might get hit by a car. I live in Ontario. The winters are very cold oh, yeah. and he couldn't dress himself. So if he got out and I hadn't dressed him warm, he would have froze. Right. Yeah. Sure, so, he could die. Uh, he was very mm-hmm. understanding when he realized that I was putting him in the home. For safety. Because I explained that to him and I said, and I will be here every day. And I was there every day. Uh-huh. At least he was able to observe that and understand that when you were saying, this is for your own good. I, I don't want to do this. I have to do this. And yeah. at least he was cognizant enough to, to be like, Okay, I understand. I put my hand on his face to get his attention because otherwise he could be looking everywhere, you know. So I would always put my hand on his face and get him to look me in the yeah. eye when I talked to him about something serious so that I knew that he was getting part of it anyway, you know. I bet you he loved you to death, though. I bet you he loved anyway. you to death, man. And that bond was what kept him still there till the end had you not been at this very long passionate true love i don't i think you would have lost him way before that he, you wouldn't have been able to communicate with him he would have been whatever you know even when he couldn't communicate like he would babble he did right like this right and sometimes i knew what he was saying because he was telling me off <laughs> <laughs> Because I was trying to feed him and he wasn't opening his mouth and I'd say his name and I'd have to keep raising my voice. And finally, I've got my voice raised, trying to get his attention. And he'd look at me and he'd say, I said, I'm sorry, I'm yelling, but I need you to eat. So you knew what he was saying. So what did the doctors say in terms of like what caused his final death? Was it just kind of the deterioration of the mind? I don't what what killed him? His organs started shutting down. Is that normal? I think so. He lost a lot of weight. He was a big man. He was about 210, six foot, you know. Mm. And when he was in his final days, it was like a Holocaust survivor. He'd lost so much weight. He didn't want to eat? I fought with the nursing home. I fought all the time. They were wonderful. They, They thought I was a bitch to begin with. But they knew why I was doing it. If they weren't doing what I wanted for him, then I spoke up. But I said, if he's not eating, I have a problem with him losing weight. If he's eating and you're doing everything you can to get food in him, then it's the disease taking his weight. And I have no control over that. And I'd have to be okay with that. So they were giving him insure puddings three times a day, insure drinks three times a day, plus his food. And he was still losing weight. So... You know, you can't survive without food. Right. And it's worth mentioning, if you have a problem with the care he might be giving, don't come every day at three o'clock. Come at random times and and see what's happening at different hours of the day and how different people treat him and stuff. It keeps the staff, you know. Knowing that you, yeah, they know you're coming. They, they were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's great," and they know you care. Yeah, they knew that I cared. In fact, some of them made comments that they they never seen that before, but. He was a good man. Maybe if he'd been a, a rotten husband and you know yeah, abused whatever. me or whatever, I might not have been there every day. But he wasn't. He was a good man. And I did everything I could to make his life comfortable right till the end and give him memories and, you know, show him that I loved him still. Well, his mission was accomplished in life. You can only imagine the lives he affected in this world. His kids, you, I mean, this is a huge butterfly effect. A man like this, even though he went a little early, he affected a lot of people. And that is what you need to celebrate. Tell us a little about the book and, and what you're trying to convey. Into- well, I wrote the book because when he first got diagnosed, I had no answers. I didn't have any help. I didn't know what to expect, Mm. when to expect it, how long that was going to last. It was a nightmare. And a book like yours can help somebody in your situation. That's right. I told them what I went through, how we dealt with it. 
what I did to make his life easy. Maintaining our connection is one of the book's chapters. Yeah. And that was one of my biggest upsets was not being able to sit and have a conversation with him. You know, so I relied on his facial expressions. And if he looked worried, I acted worried. And if he looked happy, I would smile. And a lot of people need to know how to communicate with them. So it relieves their frustration and your own. Bill, do you agree this woman's a saint? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Not a saint. I made mistakes. Believe me, I made mistakes. But I learned from them each time. Well, all the saints made mistakes, true. Trust me, there's a lot of mistakes. Me and Bill know about saints. <laughs> We're doing a show called Badass Saints. And <laughs> and they're not all perfect, but... Yeah, they ain't perfect. Yeah, they're imperfect. But like I said, what you did, your complete and absolute commitment and loyalty to his well-being, his comfort, and his happiness is saintly. So your book, in my opinion, is designed for the woman or husband who encounter this unfortunate situation and don't know how to deal with it or approach it. So you wrote this book, kind of like a blueprint, a manual of how do you deal with all of these things? I mean, this could be the book that really changes your life. Yeah. It's not the book that yeah. you want to have to buy, but if you have to buy it, this is a book that can change your life and your spouse's life, make things better. No. Yeah, I was telling Sonia before the show, I wish to God my dad would Right, exactly. I've had reviews from people that their loved one doesn't even have Alzheimer's. They've had cancer or another disease, and they've been able to relate, relate to what I've put in the book because they're going through similar things as well anyway. Yeah, I feel bad for my wife if I ever have whatever situation, you know, because the last thing your husband ever wanted, I'm sure, the last was to put you through this. There's nothing worse to a loving wife than watching her husband slowly die and suffer. In the meantime, you were able to still maintain a relationship, communicate, show love, be empathetic. That's saintly, in my opinion. Oh, thank you. But <laughs> I don't deserve that. And I'd have to say, poor Maria, because Gunner's no picnic now. <laughs> right, right. That's what I'm saying. I'm hard to handle now. And if, if this started to happen, my poor wife, I'm going to tell her if something happened, make sure you get this book. She get this book anyways. Read this book. I think it'll be important. It might help her now dealing with me. You know, there's a certain element. Yeah, it's of a fine line. I go downstairs and think, what did I come down here for? It's a fine line between it's a normal thing to forget something. And we got a lot of stuff in up our brain, right? Yeah. So I keep sure. saying that I'm filing away the garbage. I just want to keep the important stuff. Well, I think your book, I think it's one of those books that everybody can benefit from because it does teach you empathy and true love, true commitment, loyalty, how to handle your spouse. So all these little tidbits of information in your book could be applied to even a regular relationship because it's showing the world that this is true love and this is what you do in true love. You commit and you, you learn, you evolve, you support, you whatever. So I think more people need need that. In sickness and in health. It's exactly, in sickness and health. Exactly. I say that to my wife all the time because she's like, you're sick because I'll do something. I'll, I, it's like I had salmon on my hands the other day. I like to touch her. She's like, you're sick. I'm like, well, you married me for sickness and in health, so. That's right. And kids today, sick is good. Oh, yeah, that's sick. You know? <laughs> I can say, contrarily, having this run in my family, I've told Margie, when it's time, put me in the home. Don't think twice about it. I yeah. don't want you wiping yeah. my arse. Give me some dignity. Give me, give me enough. I would want to be with Maria till the very end if I was just cognizant enough, like she had with her husband. Almost to the end, she was able to have a conversation and communicate with them and still have a laugh with them. You may do something silly and fun and, and well, you can still enjoy each other while you can. But yes, once I get to the point where I can't do that, I don't even know you anymore, then yes, put me in the home and I'm sorry, I'll see you in heaven. 
If I put the milk in the freezer, they're going to ship me off at this place. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> they're already planning it. <laughs> they're already looking at brochures. I'm not I'm yeah, right. Right. Alzheimer's <laughs> home. That's crazy. Do you want me to read a short part of the book? Yes, that'd be perfect. That's what we want. Okay. I've got a couple here, Mark, but I'll read this one. One day while we were at our appointment at the Phoenix Network, we went for lunch between appointments and he was sitting at the table looking sad. I asked what the matter was and he said nothing. I pushed him because I knew something was wrong and he turned to me and said, I don't like being like this. I never forgot those words. It broke my heart. And later when we had tried everything and come to the realization that we were out of options, those words haunted me and I had to make difficult decisions that I felt were best for Steve. Leaving my selfishness aside, knowing that me wanting him with me always should not be at his expense. Amen. That's literally what I just said. Bill, too. Listen, when it gets to the point where he's not aware of your presence and your love and your commitment, it's not worth it. You know what I'm saying? So you got to put him in the home. And Yes. You're going through grief from the moment they got the diagnosis to the moment they, they right. die. You've got that long grief, you know, and some people can't handle seeing them right. like that. And that's okay. It's the time that you do spend with them that's important. And even if you think they don't hear you or understand you, keep talking because every once in a while there's a spark and they will. Oh, my God. So I, I, I just, it's horrible. But at least you turned a, a bad thing into a good thing. You know, made something good out of it that's going to help others. You know, your book. Tell everyone, name of your book, where they can find it, if you have a website. Yep, I have a website soniadisher.com and it's available on Amazon all over the world, Barnes and Noble, Kindle, Kobo, Indigo. And you can either click on links on my website or you can go directly to those websites and get it. Amazon.com, Amazon.ca. I've been selling it in Germany, England, um, Australia, the States, everywhere. I have a feeling it's going to keep selling all over the world. Hopefully this helps because unfortunately there is a percentage of the population that goes through this situation. And I'm sure every last one of them is confused and searching for research or materials or any anything that could possibly help. And you've written it for them. And I'm just saying, you're going to see your husband again and you're going to see God too. Yes. So yes. I guess you can relax in that and have peace and knowing that it's not over. The real life is going right. to begin once you breathe your last breath. And he's going to welcome you. He's going to be a 25-year-old stud. And he's going to go, hey, honey. And he's going to give you a hug. And go, Wait till you see what I got to show you. It's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to happen. Yes. I'm not scared of dying because I know I'm going to get to see him again. Good. You'll see him again. And it, it'll seem like a blink. But he's out there waiting for you, praying for you, protecting you, guiding you. Make sure to tune in next week on our thing, 1010 The King. God bless. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.